Hi, this is Jovi. And this is Charlie. And you're listening to Bed, Bed Crime, Crime Stories, Stories 100th episode. We did this it, a, guys. I know, it's so exciting. This is a weekly true crime podcast where we pour ourselves a drink and we take turns telling each other the stories that have kept up, uh, kept us up for the last 100 weeks in a row. Woo-hoo! Holy wow. bananas. That is a huge accomplishment. You know, yeah, let's do a little tap, our, uh, pat ourselves on the back. Yes. Yes. Because you know what, guys? It wasn't always easy. You know, sure. like like everything sure else, <laughs> we had ups and downs. It's just like any relationship, friendship, whatever. Sometimes it, get hard, it got hard, but you know what? We pushed through it. We pushed, we pushed through. through it. And, you know, I will say, like, again, not to be too, like, self-congratulatory, but just wanted to remind, like, we have full-time jobs. Mm-hmm. We have full-time jobs that both Jovi and I are like progressing in, like mm-hmm. we're working our way up the ladder. So we are like dedicated to our full-time jobs yes. as employees to our corporations we work for. Mm-hmm. This is something that we decided to do uh, as a hobby mm-hmm. and, you know, think, you know, we're, we're writing book reports every week. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> for fun. For fun. <laughs> but no, it's, you know, it's one of those things of, and we've, we've done our best and mm-hmm. we, I'm so proud of us for succeeding of giving you guys a brand new episode every single week for the last 100 weeks. And I'm, I'm super excited about that. Agreed. I absolutely agree. And, you know, <sighs> And also to pat ourselves on the back, it's like, you know, for having everything you just said we have, we still deliver quality stories. It's not like they're half-assed or, or anything like that. And again, it wasn't always easy because I don't know about you, Charlie, but I know when I was in school, I hated writing book reports. Like I absolutely loathed it. And yet mm-hmm. here we are, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's about stuff that I actually like and care about. So I think that makes all the difference in all the world. This is true. This is true. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people that I've always, I enjoy writing. I enjoy words. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I definitely express myself better with words and in writing than I do like with like math or something like that, yeah. some sort yeah. of other medium of educational thing um because <laughs> you know I'm such a good speaker that I can complete that sentence yes 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 but um I also public speak for a living mm-hmm. it's like my my job is centered around public speaking and and I'm always talking and I'm always creating content that's another thing that I do at my full-time job mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. to in my then spare time create content and <laughs> speak <laughs> um it's just know, an extension of your job it is it is it is but yeah you know, we wouldn't be able to do it without all of you guys who have been listening. You know, some of you guys have been listening to us from episode one, have stuck Mm -hmm. with us through all of this entire journey. And we're super thankful for every single one of you guys. We wouldn't still be here a hundred weeks later without you. Correct. Um, Like Jovi said, you know, we know that bed crime stories has gone through some changes and you guys have stuck with us and we appreciate that as well. Um, You know, I I want to send a special shout out to Nikki because technically this podcast was a brainchild of her. Yeah. So, uh, you know, special shout out to her for, for bringing us together and allowing us to, to start this journey um, in the first place. So Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I guess yeah. uh, without further ado, do you want me to introduce since um, you're going to be taking the first half of the story? Please do. Um, and I will tell you, this has been our, I, for, this has been our idea since week one. I want to say that this was a conversation that the three of us had 
from the very, very, very beginning of mm-hmm. the podcast. Um, and it was one of those things of we knew that this story was going to be a long one. We knew that we were going to kind of do a deep dive or just really give a lot of detail because there's so much information out there. Mm-hmm. And we all know it's also a story that you guys have all heard before, but it's <laughs> one that obviously we, we want to tell, right? We want to tell the story. It's a classic true crime tale. Um, so for our 100th episode, we wanted to do kind of like a double episode where both Jovi and myself took one big juicy chunky story, split it in half and brought you um, that story in one like super long episode. So buckle up, buckle up, get, get your water, get some snicky snacks, cuddle mm-hmm. up with the pup. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I hope you're ready. <laughs> yep. So tonight we are going to do a Ted Bundy super episode of Woo! bed crime stories. Yes. It is time. Yes. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's going to be a long one guys. We're going to mm-hmm. put, I'm going to put that disclaimer out here. Um, Cause I know I wrote quite a bit for my half and I know Charlie did as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, feel free to pause in the middle if you need to, you know, get up, Take stretch your legs. Yeah. Stay hydrated. Yeah, you know, and as Charlie said, this is a story that 99% of people know, Mm -hmm. and which is, it kind of works to our advantage because people know it. (laughs) We're just kind of refreshing your memory. So Mm -hmm. yeah, but all right, I'm going to jump right in. I'm taking the first half. I am doing his Northwest murders. So everything up until he's in Florida. Mm-hmm. So here we go. My sources are biography.com and history.com, um, both of which the article just said it was their editors mm-hmm. <laughs> from mm-hmm. the site. So it was a whole bunch of people. Criminal Minds Wiki, of course, mm. um, an ET online article by Stacey Lamb, a new one, murdermurdermurder.com, which try saying that three times fast as I just it is did. hard not easy it is hard murder 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 <laughs> murder 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 oxygen.com this interests me.com and of course wikipedia like I feel like that should go again go without saying just yeah. always know we use wikipedia it's yeah. always there I love this interests me mm-hmm. is kind of like the the stepchild or lesser known cousin of all that's interesting yes yeah <laughs> Pretty much this interests me, but all that's interesting <laughs> is over here, you know. It's like the stepsister, you know. Yes. Um, but no, it's it's a very cool site. Like I didn't know it existed, and it actually has a lot of stuff on there. So I'm gonna have to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Theodore Robert Cowell was born on November 24th, 1946, at the Elizabeth Blund Home for Unwed Mutter. unwed one sentence (laughs) sentence number one and the worst part is is i read this like three times over so i know it's just i don't know my nerves i don't know why am i nervous this is the hundredth episode i've done like maybe 20 i should not be this nervous anyway home for unwed mothers in burlington vermont to eleanor louise cowell who usually went by just her middle name louise there wasn't a father listed on Ted's birth certificate, but Louise claimed she was seduced by a war veteran by the name of Jack Worthington, who then abandoned her because she became pregnant. There are some speculations, however, amongst family and friends that her own father, Samuel Cowell, might actually be the father. Oh, yeah. 
For the first few years of his life, Bundy lived in Philadelphia with his grandparents, Sam and Eleanor Cowell, who raised him as their own son to avoid any of the social stigma that um, accompanied a woman given birth outside of wedlock. Mm. Family, friends, and even Ted were told that his grandparents were his parents and that his birth mom was his older sister. <sighs> yeah. And it wasn't until like, it wasn't until he was in college that he actually found out who his actual mother was. Dang. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was that late. Mm-hmm. Yep. Wow. Yep. In 1950, Louise changed her last name from Cowell to Nelson, and at the urging of multiple family members, she left Philly with Ted to go to Tacoma, Washington. Not long after, she met Johnny Culpepper Bundy. Okay, Culpepper, that is, I want my middle name, or my first surname to be Culpepper. Culpepper? Culpepper. Yeah. When you were saying she left Philadelphia, all I could think about was Fresh Prince. She leave Philadelphia <laughs> to go live with her auntie and uncle in Bel Air. <laughs> Is that where she went? <laughs> no, no. I mean, oh. if she did, it would have been perfect. It would have been yeah. perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so she met Johnny Culpepper Bundy. He was a cook at a hospital with a middle name like Culpepper. It just works out so well. Um, anyway, <laughs> sorry, I'm a nerd. Um, they met each other at an adult's single night at the Tacoma um, First Methodist Church. Okay. So by the end of 1951, Johnny and Louise were married and Johnny formally adopted Ted, making him Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. Johnny treated Bundy well, including him on camping trips and other outdoor activities he often took with his and Louise's own children. They had, um, I believe, four together. Okay. Despite this, Bundy remained distance from, distant from his stepfather. Mm-hmm. During high school, Bundy was often isolated from other kids his age. Uh, He couldn't seem to understand teenage social behavior, but was skilled in quote-unquote faking it, indicating a propensity towards psychopathy. Very Dahmer. Yeah, very much so. Right? Wasn't that very similar to the way Dahmer was? Correct. Mm. That's correct. Uh, He stated once that, quote, I didn't know what made things tick. I didn't know what made people want to be friends. I didn't know what made people attractive to one another. I didn't know what bore social interactions. It was during this time that Bundy developed a compulsion for thievery and shoplifting. Um, He typically stole skiing equipment and forged ski lifts to support his interest in the sport. Mm. In college, Bundy studied psychology and Asian studies, and he fell in love with a wealthy, pretty young woman from California named Stephanie Brooks. Mm -hmm. Um, She had everything that he had wanted, money, class, influence, you know, all the fun things in life. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephanie eventually broke up with Bundy because she was frustrated with his lack of ambition and immaturity. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you want to be with somebody who has like a goal in life. <laughs> well, especially because at this point you're in college, right? So you guys are all, you're all supposed to, well, supposed to be, supposed to be, right? Uh, socially acceptable to be already at that point where you at least kind of know where your life is going or yeah. have some sort of, um, you know, direction. So I can understand, especially as a young woman who, you know, we all know, right. Women, uh, mature faster than men. So you're a young woman. You're kind of at that point where you're like ready to settle down. You want to be with somebody who also is very ready to settle down. Correct. Absolutely. So can't blame her there. Mm -hmm. Really can't blame her. Mm -hmm. Devastated by their breakup. He became depressed and dropped out of school. He worked at various small jobs, um, never longer than a few months at a time. 
such as bagging groceries, stocking shelves, things of the like. Um, he returned to Burlington and by doing a search of public records, that's when he discovered the truth of who his mom really was. Mm. Um, by the fall of 1969, he returned to Washington and became campaign manager for Nelson Rockefeller's campaign for presidency. Hmm. It was during this time that he met Elizabeth, Elizabeth Kopfer, Klopfer. Sorry, I can't tell you how many times I practiced saying her last name before we did this because it's it's a it's a strange one. But mm-hmm. Elizabeth Klopfer who was a single mother from Utah who worked as a secretary at the University of Washington School of Medicine. Mm -hmm. Their rocky relationship wound up continuing well past his initial incarceration in Utah in 1976. Bundy became a father figure to Klopfer's daughter, Molly, who was just three years old when he started dating her mother. And he remained in her life until she was about 10 years old. And this was after he was arrested. Mm -hmm. In mid-1970, now focused and goal-oriented, he re-enrolled at the University of Washington as a psychology major and became an honor student who was well-liked by professors and students alike. His personality underwent a major paradigm shift from shy and introverted to confident and social. Mm. You know, that's when the charming and manipulativeness was like, oh, hey, hi, we were dormant for the first half of your life. So guess what? (laughs) Here's all of your personality all at once. Go ahead and use that for evil. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) In 1971, he took a job at Seattle's Suicide Hotline Crisis Center. And that's where he met um, Ann Rule, who was a former former Seattle police officer and aspiring crime writer who would later write one of the definitive Bundy biographies, The Stranger Beside Me. Mm-hmm. which charlie and i both read by the way no 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 jovi read all of it charlie has only read half of it <laughs> well okay fine so you read <laughs> i read all of it charlie read half yes approximately 50 um, <laughs> percent. i mean it's, it is a little it does get a little uh a little tough but yes yes there's a there's definitely a redundancy yes that happens kind of in that middle area yes. that i know i just have to power through um Mm -hmm. i did the same i'm doing the exact same thing with the mindhunter biography Mm. autobiography Mm -hmm. like truthfully i have like three different books that are pretty much at the halfway point where i'm just like "Mm, tapping out (laughs) come on you gotta be a finisher charlie i know one day i'm a grower not a shower you know (laughs) 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 all right then (laughs) After graduating from the University of Washington in 1972, Bundy joined Governor Daniel J. Evans' reelection campaign. Uh, posing as a college student, he shadowed Evans' opponent, former Governor Albert Rossellini, and recorded his stump speeches for analysis by Evans' team. Evans appointed Bundy to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. After Evans was reelected, Bundy was hired as an assistant to Ross Davis, who was the chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. Mm-hmm. In early 1973, despite mediocre LSAT scores, Bundy was accepted into the law schools of University of Pungent Sound. <laughs> it's not pungent. No. Oh, no. No, it's not. <laughs> it's Puget. It's Puget. I put the N in there. It is Puget. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Pungent's so a very different type of. It word. is. It's not a. It's not a very strong university. Well, 
Never mind. Again, a very strong smelling university. Yes. Yes. No, it's not. It's, it's, yeah. Anyway, mm-hmm. with that being said, sorry guys, adding letters everywhere. And he was also accepted into the University of Utah on the strength of letters of recommendation from Evans, Davis, and several UW psychology professors. During a trip to California on Republican Party business in the summer of 1973, Bundy rekindled his relationship with Stephanie Edwards. She was impressed at his transformation into the serious and dedicated professional who was seemingly on the cusp of significant legal and political career. So he got that um, motivation mm-hmm. and he matured, if you will. Mm-hmm. Bundy continued to date Elizabeth as well. And neither one of them were aware of the other. Of yeah, it was, it was a very CC Elizabeth Schmidt type of a situation. Yes. Yes. You can't have two wives. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. only one life it's the way the world works (laughs) why i don't know (laughs) i love it i love it so much it's the best it really is um (laughs) in the fall of 1973 he enrolled at the university of puget sound not pungent Um, and continued courting Edwards, who flew to Seattle several times to stay with him. They discussed marriage, and at one point, he actually introduced her introduced her to Davis as his fiance. Mm. Mm. Classy, stay classy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In January of 1974, Bundy abruptly broke off all contact with Edwards. Her phone calls and letters they all went unreturned. Um, When she finally reached him by phone a month later, she demanded to know why he had ended their relationship without explanation. Mm -hmm. In a flat, calm voice, he replied, quote, Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean. And he hung up. (laughs) Dude. Dude. uh, Holy shit. Wait. Wow. Just wow. I know. She never heard from him again. Bundy later explained, I just wanted to prove to myself that I could have married her. But. Edwards concluded in retrospect that he had deliberately planned the entire courtship and rejection in advance uh, for vengeance for breaking up with him um, back in 1968, which I believe 100%. And girl, like talk about dodging a bullet Uh, for real. Like who's, who's crying now? You you ain't (laughs) exactly, exactly. You, you missed that one. And thank God. Yeah. I mean, I mean, truthfully did you a favor for real. I've always felt so bad for Elizabeth Klobfer because like it just, it breaks my heart. The the crap that she went through. Me too. Me too. It sucks. Yeah. It really sucks. By this time, Bundy had begun skipping classes at law school by April. He had stopped attending entirely as young women began to disappear in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. So because <laughs> my my portion of the story, there is a lot of murders. Um, there's mm-hmm. a lot of victims. So I thought the easiest way would be to kind of break it down in a timeline mm-hmm. of the victims, a little kind of a little bit synopsis of what happened. Um, some are going to be a little bit longer than others because there was more information. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so just wanted to give you a little background before I started because it's a lot. Thought, yeah, it is. It is a lot. Okay, so we're starting with Karen Sparks, or known as Joni Lenz. Je- this was January 4th of 1974 in Seattle, Washington. 
Asleep in her basement room, 18-year-old UW student Karen Sparks was awoken by Bundy viciously beating her around the head with a metal bar he'd removed from her bed frame. Her housemates found her the next day with said metal bar savagely rammed into her vagina. Incredibly, she survived, I mean, albeit with life-changing injuries, including brain damage and irreparable damage to her internal organs, but she was alive. She later said in an interview in the Amazon docuseries, Ted Bundy, Falling for a Killer, quote, he came into my home, took a bed frame off my bed and smashed my skull. And he probably used that same piece of bed frame and smashed it into my vagina and into my bladder. My Mm. bladder was totally, totally, totally split. Sparks recalls revealing that it took nearly 20 hours before her roommate discovered her. Jesus. Yeah. Bob thought I was still sleeping. It was horrible for him to find me that way. Mm. Like reading that and like reading that whole article was heartbreaking. And now I really want to watch that docuseries. It's it so good. I was actually, it, I actually pulled up the Wikipedia for it to uh-huh. talk about it at the end. Because nice. it's so good. It's nice. on Amazon Prime video. Yes, I see that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm going to have to watch it. I mm-hmm. honestly, ha- I didn't have time um, before we recorded, but I will watch it. It's good. All right. So now we're moving on to February 1st, 1974, Linda Ann Healy in Seattle, Washington. The day before 21-year-old Linda Ann Healy went missing was much like any other day. She had gotten up early and gone to her job with Northwest Ski Reports, where she announced the weather and kind of gave a report on the mountain (laughs) and Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. how the snow was and all that fun stuff. If you ski, you know what I'm talking about. The ski report. Yeah. Report. And then she headed to her classes when she was done and attended an afternoon choir practice on campus. Mm-hmm. One of her roommates would later recall that Healy came and talked to her in her room around 1130 p.m. before she headed downstairs to her own room in the basement, which I would never want to. I, Charlie, I know you had a basement room, I but did. like, I don't <sighs> see. I wouldn't mind your basement room because I feel like. Mm-hmm. There was more obstacles coming in, so you would be more aware. Yeah, yeah. But no, you're right. I mean, looking back on it now as like an adult, uh, it probably wasn't the best for me to be living in that basement apartment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, you live and learn. You know? 5.30 a.m., Healy's alarm went off as usual for her early morning stint at the radio station. But when her roommate, Barbara Little, went down to the room after hearing the alarm, she discovered that Healy wasn't there. Um, Although the women's two rooms were separated by a thin partition, she hadn't heard anything out of the ordinary during the night. Mm -hmm. Uh, Initially, there were no obvious visible, no obvious or visible evidence that Healy had met with foul play, Mm. but her employer soon called the house and asked why she hadn't come to work. Her roommates noticed other disturbing clues as well. The back door that they always kept locked was open and none of the women saw Healy on campus that afternoon or at home that evening. When police were called, they were also struck by the condition of the room. It was very neat and there were no signs of foul play in the room except for some blood um, that happened to be on the pillow and the sheets of her bed. The police also remarked on how neatly the bed was made. They did find her nightgown though. It was covered in blood around the neck um, it was in the closet. It was later found that Bundy broke into her basement room, beat her unconscious, dressed her in blue jeans, a white blouse and boots, and carried her away. 
Um, her body wasn't found until a year later alongside those of other women outside Seattle on Taylor Mountain. Mm-hmm. Um, and Taylor Mountain would become known as Bundy's graveyard because there are several known vi- victims that were taken there. March 12, 1974, Donna Gail Manson in Olympia, Washington. And the reason why I'm saying where is because it kind of plays into part. Like I, there's no easy way to kind of I'm making it work. Okay. Yeah. Well, and the whole thing is, is with Bundy, because there's so many people, right? Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like, you kind of have to, it, it's, uh, you're not, you're not going to appreciate this because you hate Taylor Swift, mm-hmm. but it's like, it's kind of like a Taylor Swift thing where there's different eras of Taylor Swift, right? Every mm-hmm. album is an era. That's the way I feel with Bundy's like cluster of murders. Yeah. Like he has like his like this era where he's where he is now and then he moves to utah and then he Mm -hmm. has the era in colorado and it's like it's almost as if like every single cluster because there was like a trigger for each cluster correct it's fucking crazy correct no no you're fine you're fine i was just explaining why it sounds weird when Mm -hmm. i go in between people no it totally makes sense though i i get it i totally get why you're doing it well thank you and i hope welcome you listeners understand as well you guys at home yes mm-hmm. mm. donna who was 19 a highly intelligent evergreen state college student was planning on attending a folk dancing class at the college activities building she was also planning on attending a jazz concert that was due to begin at 8 p.m in the main foyer of the library building before leaving she seemed overly focused on her appearance and changed her outfit several times mm. um, but there was no mention to her roommates about meeting anyone or even going on a date. Yeah. Donna left her dorm shortly after 7 p.m. and started her way to the college activities building, which was less than 200 yards away. Because no one recalls seeing her at the folk dancing class or the jazz recital, it is very unlikely that she made it that far. And another thing I noticed with Bundy, and I'm sure you did as well, Charlie, um, mm-hmm. the he was <laughs> like her apartment or whatever was 200 yards away from the building every time bundy targeted somebody it was always that little bit of an area like it wasn't like miles away it was literally yards or feet away from their friends or from the building that they were going to like yes that's that's it's fucking creepy it's creepy yes well and it's yes (laughs) (laughs) and it's almost as if like i i think that was part of like the thrill Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. was i'm i'm so i'm this close right i'm feet away from being caught and i can and i could still do it right because that that was the person that he was Mm -hmm. she was known to have a tendency to go off on her own for a few days at a time so she wasn't reported missing until six days later because they just thought oh she decided to up and leave for two to three days um but no that was not the case Bundy claimed responsibility for her murder and claimed that some of the remains found on Taylor Mountain were hers. Bundy's MO changed with Donna. She was the first victim where he didn't break into her house and bludgeon her while they were sleeping. In this case, he abducted her from a public place, which makes it possible that this was the first time he used the quote unquote fake injury ruse. So that's where it starts. Yep. April 17th, 1974. Suzanne Elaine Rancourt, Ellensburg, Washington. Susan, 18, worked extremely hard to put herself through college and averaged a 4.0 at Central Washington University. Yes, girl. 
Yes. <laughs> Before 8 p.m. on April 17th, she was washing her clothes in the communal laundry room of her dorm building. After switching on the wash machine, she left to attend a meeting at Munson Hall. The meeting was for undergrads who were interested in becoming RAs, um, resident assistants, which Charlie, I know you know, but I honestly didn't know what RA stood for, but that's just me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) This role, among other things, involves helping other students and ensuring their safety. Mm -hmm. The meeting ended around 10 p.m. and she left Munson Hall to return to the laundry room at her dorm. She had plans to meet up with a friend when she was finished to watch a movie. Her clothes were never taken from the laundry room, and it's clear she never made it back to her dorm at Bartow Hall. According to investigators, the most likely scenario is that Ted spotted Susan shortly after she left the meeting at Munson Hall. There were witness accounts where it was stated that Ted was seen wearing a fake sling and trolling around the campus in search of his next victim. Once he spotted Susan walking by herself, he wandered over in her direction. (laughs) Yeah. In this particular case, he dropped the books in front of her. Seeing this quote-unquote injured man struggling with the books, she did what most people would do and asked if he needed any help. Needless to say, Bundy immediately accepted the offer. Mm -hmm. As Susan was leaning over and trying to place the books into the Volkswagen Beetle, Bundy seized the opportunity and struck her over the head with a crowbar. He then lifted her unconscious body into the car and drove away. And she was unlike ted's previous victim she had blonde hair instead of Mm -hmm. the brunette and yeah Mm -hmm. so just a little different yeah and it's like he's so fully aware that especially women are going to see a person struggling Mm -hmm. and he's like preying on a a woman's natural empathy right which is sinister in its own uh, correct Yeah, yeah for sure for sure yeah may 6th 1974 Roberta Kathleen Parks, Corvallis, Oregon. An Oregon State University student majoring in world religions, 20-year-old Roberta agreed to meet friends for coffee the evening of May 6, 1974, but never arrived. Um, There are little to no details about her abduction, and some are kind of speculative, I guess. Um, But there are two things that we know for sure. One, she was having an having an extremely emotional and, stre- and stressful day on May 6th. Mm-hmm. And two, she was last spotted walking between her dorm room and Sackett Hall at the commons area of the Memorial Union building. While she was still en route to the Memorial Union building, Roberta stopped to talk to her friend and had a quick conversation about an upcoming Spanish test. This is the last time anyone saw her alive. More than nine months after her disappearance, a search team discovered her skull and jawbone at Bundy's burial site on Taylor Mountain. Mm. Up until the discovery at Taylor Mountain, the media typically avoided grouping her with the um, with the other women who have gone missing previously. Um, besides, the other women were abducted from the Seattle area, right? And Parks was at a university that was 250 miles away, so there was yeah. nothing. It didn't make sense until until they found her her remains that's mm, sorry it's just it's so much Mm -hmm. it's so much oh it absolutely is i knew it was but researching like this half of it i was just like holy shit like i knew there was a lot that he had um he had killed in that area but i didn't realize how much 
Like yeah. it doesn't, it didn't seem real until I was going person by person. Then I was like, yes. Oh my God. Yeah. I want to say it's at the end of the Zephron movie, mm. the um, shockingly evil and cruel, whatever, vile, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile. Right, right, right. Not, not American Boogeyman. No. Um, <laughs> but I think it's no. the end of the Zephron one where they like list all of the names of his victims and it's just it's it's so much it is it's so fucking much it is oh and also did you know because <laughs> i found out from just perusing the wikipedia that james marsters played ted bundy what i did not know that didn't know that either apparently there was a tv movie called the capture of the green river killer and he plays Bundy in that. So now I have to try and find yes. it. It was, a, it was a lifetime movie. Yes. So now I have to try it. and find it because, um, yeah. 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 Yes. <laughs> I did not know that. Holy shit. Though I don't, you know what? There's a part of me because it was hard enough watching Zac Efron, who I, I adore and do find very attractive yes. and think that he's a, f- a phenomenal fucking actor he really is it was hard to watch him play ted bundy this person that i hate so much mm-hmm. i don't know if i want to do it to james marsters because he's probably one of my favorite celebrities of all time yeah that's that's a that's a line that you're gonna have to that's a line i'm gonna have to try and like have to figure out whether or not right. i'm ready for that correct i mean i know i, I kind of want to watch it because i want to i, I kind of want to <laughs> compare it to america's boogeyman Oh God, Because I just want to see, especially since it's a lifetime movie, God only knows, but the one who plays like the detective, uh, Dave Reichert, uh-huh. who does, he's the one who interviews Bundy. Yeah. Um, is Tom Cavanaugh. He's the guy who plays, uh, the dude in the flash. He's like the, he's like the older flash. He's yes. like the bad guy. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and he's been in like a decent amount of things. So, okay. I'm curious if it's okay. actually kind of okay. Well, why don't you yeah. see if you can find like a trailer for it? Because yeah. it, it has, there has to be something somewhere. Yeah, and this, look at it. in this interwebs day and age, it yes. has to be somewhere. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. But yes, interesting. I did not know that. Uh, apparently, it was apparently. <laughs> I always feel like I'm Wendy Williams <laughs> when I say apparently. Well, apparently, <laughs> um, it was the highest rated and most watched Lifetime program in the ten year history of the the network at the point. At oh point. shit. Well, yeah. Ted Bundy story, it makes sense. Yeah, that's also true. I think that's, yeah, more a Bundy thing than a, yeah, it's good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I just, I got off subject. I wanted to tell you about James Marsters and I forgot to do it before we started. It's okay. It My is, bad. it is all right. It is all, all right. right. So yeah, because it was so far away, it kind of was like, mm, but mm-hmm. now they're like, oh shit. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. According to King County detective Robert Keppel, he initially found it difficult to believe that the killer they knew as quote unquote Ted would venture so far outside of his quote unquote hunting territory. Mm-hmm. The discovery of Roberta's skull among the remains of Brenda Ball, Susan Rancourt, and Linda Healy came somewhat as a surprise to investigators. Up until this point, they believed that the killer was focusing his efforts just in the Seattle area. June 1st, 1974, Brenda Carol Ball, Buren, Washington. As with Roberta, police didn't believe that her case was related to the other missing women. They were abducted from college campuses while 22-year-old Brenda was slightly older, only slightly, and vanished after spending the night at a dive bar. 
Mm-hmm. Sadly, it seems as though she was largely forgotten about until two students happened to cross her skull on Taylor Mountain, which really sucks. Um, ironically, it was Brenda's skull that led investigators to the remains of some of the other missing girls. Following the discovery, yeah. No, I was just going to say, like, I, and what's interesting is both Brenda and Roberta up to that point were his two oldest victims. Right. So the fact that the two of them were the ones that they didn't believe were tied to him is, um, is surprising. Yeah. But it's not, I mean, it's not like they were 40. No, it was only like two or three years. It like, yeah. Yeah. Cause you figure it was like around still 18, college 19. age. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's age weird. discriminators. <clears throat> right. <laughs> Ageists. For real. Following the discovery, search teams combined the site and located Linda Ann Healy, Susan Elaine Rancourt, Rancourt, and Mm -hmm. Roberta Parks. Brenda stayed at a local bar that she was a regular at until closing. She had asked a member of the band that was performing that night if he could give her a ride home, but he said that he couldn't because he was going in the complete opposite direction. Mm. There are two conflicting reports on how she left the bar that night. One states that she left by herself and hitchhiked a ride home, and the other states that she left with an unidentified man. Either way, she fell victim to Ted Bundy. So her roommates didn't think much about her not returning home for a few few days since she had a habit of going on trips and staying with different people for days at a time. However, days turned into weeks and weeks. Yeah. Now I wonder if, I really hope that that person who said that he couldn't drive her doesn't like feel never felt survivor's guilt over it Yeah, because I, that's definitely not a, you were going in the other direction. It makes sense that you would decline. That's just, that's, it's a shitty feeling. It's, it's it's gotta be a a shitty shitty feeling. feeling. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. For sure. Yeah. That sucks. Mm. It does. I didn't even think about that until you said it. Yeah. Days turned into weeks and the red flags raised. Brenda never attempted to make any contact and all of her clothes were still at the apartment. They checked with Brenda's bank to see if she had made any withdrawals, any, anything, but there hadn't been anything in the recent, her recent activity Mm. on June 17th, her mother, her mother filed a missing persons report. I keep saying mutter. Yeah. That's like the hello mutter. (laughs) Hello (laughs) father. I got problems. Bundy's girlfriend, Liz Klopfer, stated that Ted was in a quote-unquote hurry the evening of May 31st. Um, She was going to have her daughter, Molly, baptized by her father, so Ted treated everyone to pizza to celebrate. Once they were done with the pizza, Ted stated that he had to go home, and he left. The next day at the baptism, he didn't show for the ceremony and was about two hours late. The excuse he gave was that he had car trouble. He was probably too afraid that if he walked into a church, his skin would just catch on fire because he's basically the fucking devil. It's very possible. I'm, you know what? I'm going to go with that. That's exactly yeah, what it was. I think that that's the reason. <laughs> that yeah. and the fact that he just murdered somebody, which yes. would cause his skin to go into flames because he's the fucking devil. Correct. Ugh. And Liz's mom also kept a diary, so they, they were able to co- co- cooperate. Corroborate. Corroborate. Okay. I was like, it's sounds- <laughs> Like I know the word, but it sounded, it sounded weird when I went to yes. say it. So yes. they were able to, it was mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So the theory is that Ted was eager to leave early to hunt for another victim. And his late return the next day suggests that he was preoccupied with the disposal of Brenda's body. 
During one of his prison interviews, Bundy quote unquote speculated about quote unquote what might have happened. And the reason why he kept saying things in quotes is because he would talk about himself in the third person so that he wouldn't implicate himself, yes, which yes. smart, but yeah, I do talk. I do talk about that later. <laughs> oh, okay. Mm-hmm, oh, mm-hmm, so this mm-hmm. is like a, a preview Pre- preview. Mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Um, according to him, the killer may have intentionally changed his MO by picking up a hitchhiker, allowing him to fly under the radar for targeting a woman in a different setting. I mean, yeah. Yeah. After picking Brenda up, he remained friendly and made small talk with her. Um, when he learned that she didn't have plans for the night, he asked if she wanted to go to a party back at his place. According to him, she accepted the invitation. He remained focused and kept her at ease so she wouldn't have any second thoughts. Once they reached his house, it was obvious that there was no party, and Ted quickly came up with an excuse. They eventually wound up in the house and drank together until she was, quote, exceptionally intoxicated and had, quote, consensual sex. The consensual sex didn't fulfill his desire, so he decided to strangle her, who was sleeping. Mm. Because he's he's a gem. He's a gem. Mm-hmm. Now, former UW student... Phyllis Armstrong stated that a man in crutches asked her to carry a gas can to his Volkswagen bug on May 31st. Mm-hmm. Once they reached the car, he asked her to get inside and help him start it by pushing a button underneath the steering wheel. I know I, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Yeah. But luckily Phyllis was like, mm, that makes no sense. Sorry. I'm out of here. So good job, Phyllis. Um, This encounter took place at 11 p.m., roughly three hours before Brenda Ball went missing. If the man in question was Ted Bundy, then it means that his statement about the quote-unquote killer purposely changing his M.O. in order to avoid the attention was a lie. Mm. So, in other words, Bundy didn't change his M.O. as part of some cunning strategy to avoid detection. In reality, he changed it because his initial plan and victim fell through. Yep. Yeah. Oh, Bundy. This is going to sound really stupid, but George Ann Hawkins was always most intriguing just because mm-hmm. of like how he, where he abducted her. Right. Right. It's that. And then, of course, the Sammamish. Yeah. Oh, which that is one, right after her. Yes. Yeah. Dude, the Sammamish one. Like, I could do a report just on the Sammamish one. Yeah. I mean, I, Cliff noted it as much as I could because I knew it's like a pivotal yeah. moment. In yeah. his killing career. Yeah. But yeah. But no, I, this one, like when they show you the pictures of the alleyway and how well lit it was and just everything about it is. And like, it was seconds, seconds. She had yes. just left the one place to go to where the other, it was seconds. She was gone. Yeah. It was it's insane. It's ridiculous. To me. Yeah. And she also is like so fucking beautiful. They so honestly, fucking beautiful. A lot, most of them are. Most of them are, yes. Like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, when I was obviously going victim by victim, I was looking at mm-hmm. their pictures and I was like, oh my God. Like, yeah. Yeah. Just like your typical 70s Farrah Fawcett hair and just, mm-hmm. just natural beauty. It was, it's a shame. Yeah. It's a shame. But speaking of George Ann Hawkins, <laughs> uh, that brings us to July 11th, 1974 in Seattle, Washington. Naturally, After the disappearance of so many female college students during the first few months of the year, 
um, in the Seattle area, students were starting to be extremely cautious, which they should be. Yeah. I know I'd be shooting my pants and I'd never want to leave by myself or be alone ever. George Ann, 18, left her boyfriend's apartment at around 1 a.m. to return to her dorm that's just six houses down the road around the corner. Friends and neighbors say that they saw her make it to the 40-foot-long, brightly lit alleyway entrance that led to her front door, but she never made it. It's it's so crazy. It's so crazy. It absolutely is. Oh, it is insane. As he approached the 18-year-old on crutches with a leg cast, he dropped the briefcase that he was carrying and asked her if she could help him carry it to his car. Because Georgianne believed that Bundy was injured and in need of assistance, she obliged. At that point, the pair turned around and walked to a parking lot that was roughly about 500 feet north of the alleyway. Once they got to Bundy's car, Georgianne bent over to place his briefcase on one of the seats, and as she was doing so, Bundy struck her over the head with a crowbar and knocked her unconscious. He then bundled her into his Volkswagen bug and drove her to a secluded area near, near Lake Sammamish. I love saying that, by the way, Sammamish, yeah, um, <laughs> where he undressed her and strangled her to death using a piece of rope. Mm. Incredibly, Bundy returned to the scene of the crime the next morning while the police were investigating to retrieve her earrings and a shoe that were left in the adjacent parking lot. So he had the fucking balls to show up pretty much on the crime scene. Wow. I, wow. I, I can't. I can't with this guy. Ironically enough, during this period, Bundy was working in Olympia as the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission, where he wrote a pamphlet for women on rape prevention. It's like, yeah, you motherfucker. It's because you're the one who does it. So you know how to prevent it. I hate him. He is trash. I hate him. Literal fucking trash. Anyway, now speaking of Lake Sammamish, this brings us to July 14th, 1974 when he takes Janice Ott and Denise Naslin in Issaquah because I just like saying Issaquah. Sorry. Issaquah and Sammamish are both yes, excellent it's fun. words. It's mm-hmm, fun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right so setting the scene it was a beautiful sunny day making it the perfect opportunity for locals and tourists alike to head to Lake Sammamish to enjoy themselves. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately for two young women this day did not turn out the way they wanted it to or had planned it to. Janice Ott was a 23-year-old juvenile court worker who lived in Issaquah, who had just separated with her husband, Jim, who was studying in California. Because there was no one around and she had nothing else to do that day, she decided to head to the beach by herself. She left a note for her roommate, letting them know that she'd be back by 4.30, grabbed her yellow bicycle, and made her way to Lake Sammamish. Mm. Once she arrived at the park, she found her spot on the beach, laid her towel down, and started to relax. Before Ted spotted Janice, Ted attempted to lure another woman named Janice Graham away from the park. He introduced himself to her and asked if she could help him unload a sailboat. Thinking that the boat was actually in the parking lot, she was like, okay, and followed him. But she realized that the boat was not there and was like, what the fuck? (laughs) Well, she didn't say that. She was... (laughs) She was like, she may have thought that. I mean, it's very possible. I just don't Mm -hmm. want to put words in her mouth, you know? (laughs) It's true. It's true. (laughs) But yeah, when she realized that there was no boat, she refused to get into his 
his bug since the boat was, quote, somewhere else. After the failed attempt, he noticed Ott a few moments later, alone on the beach, and he approached her. Ted used the same ruse on her that he had used on Graham, but this time he tweaked his story a little bit to explain that the boat wasn't actually there, but at his parents' house in Issaquah. He explained that his arm was injured from playing racquetball and that he needed someone to help him unload a catamaran boat. One second. You know how big a catamaran boat is, right? I do indeed okay. know how big a catamaran okay. boat is. Yes. Okay. Just just picture that just being towed. <laughs> just, just picture that being towed by a, a Volkswagen bug. Right. Okay. That's not going to happen in a million years. Mm-hmm. I'm not victim shaming. I'm just saying like, right, if he right, was right. going to pick a boat, he went with catamaran? Really? Say, I need you to help unload my dinghy. Right. <laughs> dinghy. Um, <laughs> exactly exactly Mm -hmm. um although ot was friendly towards ted she did not or she did display signs that she really didn't want to leave the beach um according to witness accounts he was pretty insistent it was also said that janice was overheard asking if her bike would fit into his car to which of course he said it would fit in the trunk this was the last time anyone saw her alive Mm. on september 6th 1974 two grouse hunters discovered her skeletal remains scattered across a grassy patch of land in a wooded area near Issaquah, which I had to Google how to say grouse because it's spelled. It's spelled yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Spelled grouse. Like it's yeah. like you're grouse. Like you're so grouse. <laughs> that reminds me of uh, the time that you texted me and you're like couch. Couth. 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 Yeah. yeah you're like how do you how do you i'm like it's actually spelled c-o-u-t-h you're like oh that's stupid that looks like it should be couth and i'm like i'm laughing so hard i peed the couth <laughs> like couch i don't know it was funny it was no <laughs> i remember that as if it was yesterday it was yeah. really fucking funny we're, we're funny. hilarious we we're very really funny. are <laughs> we are Denise Naslin was a 19-year-old student who was studying software development at night school, working part-time during the day in an office. Denise and her boyfriend, Ken Little, arrived at Lake Sammamish with another couple, Bob Sargent and Nancy Batima, around 1 p.m. The group decided to sit at a spot on the eastern side of the park, roughly 200 feet north of the restrooms. According to Nancy, Denise took four Valium tablets when they arrived like holy shit she she wanted that buzz Mm -hmm. shortly after 4 p.m ken and bob fell asleep after the group had eaten lunch and at that point denise told nancy that she was feeling high after a short conversation about the time denise got up without saying anything and walked over towards the restrooms she never returned at some point denise was approached by bundy who had returned to the park to look for a second victim Eight weeks later, her skeletal remains were discovered alongside Ott's. As the afternoon turned into early evening, more and more people began to leave the park. However, Denise's group of friends stuck around and waited for her, um, obviously hoping that she would return. Fearing the worst, Ken decided to report her as missing to a park ranger. Over the next few days, it started to dawn on everyone that both Janice Ott and Denise Naslin had gone missing from Lake Sammamish on the exact same day. It was becoming increasingly clear that the women of Seattle were no longer safe. Despite this, the abductions at the lake came as a huge shock shock to everyone, especially because it was done in broad fucking daylight. Balls. Yeah. Massive ones. Yeah. 
Janice and Denise, they disappeared within three and a half hours of each other. That's the thing that I think is the most shocking Mm -hmm. because we hadn't seen up to this point him act twice in one day. Right. And like the only other time that he does that, there's only two other times that he does that. And it's when he fails. Right. Correct. So the fact that he successfully quote unquote, was able to abduct and, and kill Janice Ott. The fact that he went back and did it again is it's shocking. It is. It really is. Yeah. It's shocking. And it makes you wonder what did he feel that he didn't get from that first. Right. That he was missing, that he was lacking, that he had to go back and do it again. Correct. Correct. Especially when you're in a place like that, like Mm -hmm. it wasn't even like it was a thing that was like his, it was an empty space that he just happened to look out and find somebody like you're in this incredibly crowded area. And then that that's when you chose to go back and do it a second time. But that was the thing. He was probably thinking, Oh, "Oh, I'm going to, I have um, many a people, many Mm -hmm. a women to choose from. This is the perfect Mm -hmm. opportunity for me to, you know, kill. Yep. And plenty of witnesses. Correct. Well, I don't know if he thought that through. But that's what I'm saying. It's like, I think that that's the thing that's so crazy to me. Like, yeah, of all the places you decide to be your, I'm going to do this twice to choose Lake Sammamish on an incredibly busy day is fucking weird to me. Mm-hmm. Well, also too, he was drunk for like 98% of his killing. Yeah. Because he was an alcoholic. Yeah. So maybe it was he had a lot that day and it was more liquid courage than anything which was the least of his worries legit that is 110 percent accurate the least of his crimes and a lot of there is speculation that when he took janice ott he brought her somewhere and then went to get denise and he had them together yeah 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 and he had watch yeah no just you know what i'm gonna say i don't want to say because it's i do it's terrible Mm -hmm. (sighs) okay Based on a large number of witnesses, the authorities released a sketch of the suspect on the disappearances of Ott and Naslin, who was said also said to have called himself, quote unquote, Ted and drove a metallic brown Volkswagen Beetle. Among the people who reported Bundy were Liz, his girlfriend, mm-hmm. one of his psychology professors and Ann Rule. Because of his revu- reputation as a clean shaven and well-mannered student, the police were like, nah. It's not him, mm. which I bet you they kicked themselves in the ass a lot after that. Yeah. Just saying. Bundy cut his hair short and moved on to Salt Lake City, Utah on September 2nd, where he continued his studies in the University of Utah College of Law and became a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Interesting. I did not know that. that. I also did not know that. Like, I was like, wait, what? Um, he never attended, he never really attended any of the gatherings or anything like that. But like, Mm -hmm. I was like, he would become a Mormon. It's just random. It is very random, random, very random. But then again, I thought of it this way too, as I was researching this, he's in Utah. He probably just wanted to kind of blend in, especially since he was in that area anyway. Correct. Blend in and also have access to as many young women as you possibly can. That is correct. Yeah. That brings us to October 2nd, 1974, Nancy Wilcox, um, Holiday, Salt Lake City, Utah. 
Nancy Wilcox, 16, went missing in Holiday, Utah, after she went out to buy a pack of gum, but her body was never even found. Um, Bundy confessed to sexually assaulting and strangling her, then burying her body near Capitol Reef National Park, located about 200 miles south of Salt Lake City. Um, Her body has never been recovered. October 18th, 1974, Melissa Ann Smith from Midvale, Utah. Now, this one is was a very ballsy mood move um, mm-hmm. because she was the 17-year-old daughter of um, Midvale's police chief and like brazen. Yeah. Brazen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. She disappeared on her way home after visiting a friend nearby she was discovered nine days later in nearby summit park which was like a a very mountainous area Mm -hmm. Uh, her corpse was nude the teenager had been strangled raped and sodomized she had suffered a savage beating with multiple skull fractures from a blunt object Mm. balls yeah just balls yep october 31st 1974 laura ann aim aim Amy? I was going with AIM as well. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Laura and AIM uh, of Murray, Utah, tall and skinny Laura, um, 17, had been at a cafe on Halloween at nighttime, but left alone around midnight. She was never seen alive again. Her body was found nude near a river in the Wasatch Mountains, strangled and beaten. She had been sexually assaulted. November 8th, 1974. Now, this is when he double dipped again, but, mm-hmm. but Carol, she's a survivor. Mm-hmm. She's a survivor. She's not going to take it. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> November 8th, 1974, Carol Duranch of Murray, Utah. Carol Duranch, 18, she narrowly escapes being abducted by Bundy. Uh, Carol had been shopping at a mall when a man claiming to be a police detective told her that there was an attempted theft on her car and she needed to file a police report. Despite her hesitations, she accompanied the man to his Volkswagen and got into the car. Once inside, he placed a handcuff on her and attempted to hit her with a crowbar, but she fought back and jumped out the damn car. The fact that she got that far and was actually in his vehicle. Yep. And was still able to escape like it's girl. Yes. Yes. Mm. I want to be her when I grow up, like just to be like, no, sorry. I ain't dealing with this. I I think the fuck not. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Carol's attempted abduction was of special interest to the Utah authorities um, who were trying to figure out what had happened to several young women who disappeared earlier in the fall. Simultaneously, Seattle area officials were looking for a young man named Ted, who was a suspected culprit in many murder cases. Now, later on that same day, November 8, 1974, Deborah Kent, 17, was last seen on that day that I just said 16 times, November 8, 1974. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. What day was it again? No, okay. <laughs> I, was gonna, I was actually going to read it again. But yeah, that day. Mm-hmm watching a play at Viewmont High School in Bountiful, Utah. She had left at approximately 10.30 p.m. to pick up her brother from the nearby Rustic Roller Rink. After the play finished, Deborah's parents were left waiting for their daughter to return, but then they noticed that their car was the only one left in the parking lot. Police were called and a witness described having seen a brown VW bug speed off that night. 
A handcuff key was also found in the parking lot matching the handcuffs that Durange had been wearing when she escaped. Shit. Yep. Yep. That's crazy. Uh-huh. Deborah's remains were never identified. Yeah. Sometime in November, Liz Klopfer called King County Police a second time after reading that young women were disappearing in towns surrounding Salt Lake City. Detective Randy, I had I spelt this out phonetically. <laughs> So I'm going to try mm-hmm. detective Randy Hergesheimer Hergesheimer mm-hmm. of the major crimes division interviewed her in detail by then Bundy had risen considerably on the King County hierarchy of suspicion, but the Lake Sammamish witness considered most reliable by the detectives failed to identify him from a photo, a photo, a photo lineup. But we know how much of a shapeshifter he was, right? And you figure by this point, when he's in Utah, it's what, pretty much a full year later, almost a full year later, about a half year later. Almost, yeah. And we know how much he would change his Mm -hmm. facial hair, the way his hair was cut. Yep. I mean, just, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not blaming anyone. I mean, it is what it is, but it's just, it's, it's so frustrating is what it is. Correct. And photos can be deceiving too. So it's like, I think it would be different if they actually had like an in-person lineup. Yeah. 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 As opposed to a picture one. But like you said, it's neither here nor there. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, Mm -hmm. I agree. In December, Klopfer called the Salt Lake county sheriff's office and repeated her suspicions bundy's name was added to their list of suspects but at the time no credible forensic evidence linked linked him to the utah crimes in january of 1975 bundy returned to seattle after his final exams and spent a week with liz who did not tell him that she had reported him to the police on three occasions and i um hmm I get why, well, first of all, obviously you would get why she wouldn't say anything, right? You don't Mm want to be, you don't want to make him angry, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's like you, you also, you also kind of can't blame her for continuing to talk to him because at this point you call the cops and they're like, no, it's not him. Like, we're telling you it's not him. Like, okay, it's not him. I'm just telling you what I know. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And you're telling me it's not him. So, okay, then I'll continue feeling the way that I feel. So it's, you know just all frustrating and upsetting and i do i do feel bad for her because she oh, i do genuinely cared him and loved mm-hmm. him so she didn't want to see the bad in him but it was it just it started to mesh together and it was yeah. hard to not be like well it's not him oh, yeah it's him mm-hmm. <laughs> uh okay january 12th 1975 karen eileen campbell of aspen colorado the nurse from Michigan had been vacationing with her fiance and his two children when she disappeared from the hotel that they were staying at. Karen's body was found in a snowbank on Owl Creek Road, Aspen, on February 18th. She was nude and had likely been raped. March 15th, 1975, Julie Cunningham, Vail, Colorado. A part-time ski instructor, instructor, 26-year-old Cunningham, was walking to a restaurant to meet up with a friend when she offered to help Bundy, who was pretending to struggle on crutches. Shock of the century. He kidnapped her and put her in, in his trunk where he drove to the desert, strangled her to death, and left her body there. Her body was never found. Um, Bundy. 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 <laughs> Bundy confessed to her murder before his execution. 
April 6, 1975, Denise Lynn Oliverson, Grand Junction, Colorado. After a heated argument with her husband, the 25-year-old took her push bike and made her way to her parents' house. Bundy abducted her before she got there. Her husband reported her missing after he had contacted her parents and discovered that she never arrived. Bundy claimed to have thrown her body into the Colorado River a few miles from where her her bicycle and sandals were found, but it was never recovered. There's actually a good amount of women that he killed that their bodies are still nowhere. Like they don't have Mm -hmm. their bodies. And that to me is so fucking upsetting. That's so upsetting. And I feel so badly for their families. May 6th, 1975, Lynette Dawn Culver of Pocatello, Idaho. She was 12. 12. Yep. Bundy abducted the young girl from her school and according to his confessions, discarded her body into the Snake River. Her body has also never been found. June 28th, 1975, Susan Curtis of Provo, Utah. Uh, She was 16. And she was abducted while walking back to her room during a Mormon youth conference at Brigham Young University. Curtis was Bundy's last confession as he walked down the hall to be executed. She is still regarded as a missing person as her body has never been found. So that kind of, those are all his victims that we know of Mm -hmm. in that North, um, the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. Way too many. (laughs) way too many yeah yeah in washington state investigators were still struggling to analyze the pacific northwest murder spree that had ended as abruptly as it began in an effort to make sense of an overwhelming mass of information they resorted to the then innovative strategy of compiling a database they use yeah i mean look at that with an excel spreadsheet i I know (laughs) They used the King County payroll computer, which was a huge and primitive machine. And that's a quote by contemporary standards, but the only one available for their use. After inputting as many lists as they had compiled, classmates and acquaintances of each victim, Volkswagen owners named Ted, known sex offenders and so on, they queried the computer for coincidences. Out of thousands of names, 26 turned up on four lists one was ted bundy Mm. detectives also manually compiled a list of their 100 best suspects and bundy was on that list as well he was quote literally at the top of the pile of suspects when word came from utah of his arrest wow on august 16th 1975 the day before your birthday the day before my birthday <laughs> not the year though no i was still no. eight years away from gracing this earth with my joy yes i don't even think you were you're welcome your world <laughs> no probably not <laughs> hmm. on august 16th 1975 <laughs> bundy was arrested by utah highway utah Highway Patrol Officer Bob Hayward in Granger, which was a Salt Lake City suburb. Mm -hmm. Hayward observed Bundy cruising a residential area in his Volkswagen Beetle during the pre-dawn hours and fleeing at high speed after seeing his patrol car. He noticed that the Volkswagen's front passenger seat had been removed and (laughs) placed on the rear seats and searched the car. He found a ski mask, 
a second mask that was fashioned from pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, a coil of rope, an ice pick, and other items initially assumed to be burglary tools. I would like to say burglary. (laughs) I know. I know. Because, I mean, an ice pick, handcuffs. I know. I know. I know. All right. I mean, either way. I'm going to go out on a limby limb and say that that's straight up a murder case. It's a murder kit. It's a murder kit. Yeah, I would agree But okay, fine. Bundy explained that the ski mask was for skiing. He he had found the handcuffs. What a concept. I know. (laughs) He had found the handcuffs in a a dumpster and the rest were common household items. Yeah, common household items, not common Volkswagen Beetle items. Correct. Correct. What the fuck do you need an ice pick in your car for, you dumbass? Correct. (laughs) Stupid shape shifting jabroni. (laughs) I hate him. I hate him. Can we can we name this episode Shape Shifting Chabroni, please? Can we please? <laughs> Dumbass. Oh, um, F- F- FYI, I also I think I also said Jabroni last week in the Lou Perlman episode. Uh-huh. Um, I'm trying to bring Jabroni back. I know you said that a couple yeah. episodes did ago. I, did, okay. Yeah, you it's, did. It's happening, guys. Yes. Yes. It's, it's happening. It's it's coming. It's coming. Monday is age. king of all the Jabronis. <laughs> especially the shape-shifting ones. However, Detective Jerry Thompson remender- remembered a similar suspect and car description from the November 1974 Durange kidnapping and Smart. Bundy's name from Liz Klopfer. Sorry, I keep having to think of how to say her name. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, from her phone call a month after her kidnapping. Right, right, right. In a search of Bundy's apartment, Police found a guide to Colorado ski resorts with a check mark by the Wildwood Inn. I mean, I'm okay. Continue. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go I ahead. know. And a brochure that advertised the Viewmont High School play and Bountiful, where Deborah Kent had disappeared. What? I, I know. How did he not just have a giant neon sign over his head that said, "Hey guys, me the murderer"? I know. I and I have an opinion. I feel mm. like if this shit was being done now, like if he, Bundy tried to do this now, I feel like that would have been enough for them to be like, no, no, it would have been, maybe it would have been different. Maybe it would have been treated differently, especially because there's been so many serial killers since that time that yeah, yeah. they now take these things into account. Mm-hmm. I think. Well, and, and also like I know like, I know one of the big things that they that's always been said about Bundy is the reason why he was able to get away with it for so long is because he continued to move. And back then there wasn't like a national registry of all this shit. So it was it was hard to kind of tie it all together, the individual pieces. Correct. But like I'm I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's literally blueprints to what he did. The whole thing is is he's all he's doing here, you're in Utah, you've You've arrested him in Utah. He's giving you like a pile of evidence that proves that he's the murderer from Utah. Yep. So yep. what's the difference? I, I don't Agreed. know. Whatever. I can't. I, agree. I, I got nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> uh, the police did not have sufficient evidence to detain Bundy. So he was released on his own recognizance. I love that word. You know, it's Jesus a great Christ, word. I'm sorry. That's okay. It's a great word. It should be used more often. Recognizance. Yeah, yeah. for sure. It's good such word. a good word. It is. 
Bundy later said that searchers missed a hidden collection of Polaroid photographs of his victims, which he destroyed after he was released. Of yeah. course he did. Yep. Of course. Of course. <sighs> Bundy was placed on 24-hour surveillance, and Thompson flew to Seattle with two other detectives to interview Liz. She told them that the year prior to his move to Utah, she discovered objects that she couldn't understand in her house and in Ted's apartment. So crutches, a bag mm. of plaster of Paris, which he admitted to stealing, surgical okay. gloves, an oriental knife in a wooden case that was kept in his glove compartment, and a sack full of women's clothing. Mm. So the plaster of Paris, I'm assuming he would fashion like his own... Um, casts yes with the with the plaster of paris correct correct <laughs> he admitted from stealing from a medical supply house okay yeah yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> i just a meat cleaver never used for cooking well okay yep. that's yep. a big old red flag yep she continued to mention that bundy would get very upset when she considered cutting her hair because it was long mm-hmm. brunette and parted down the middle mm-hmm. and he couldn't he couldn't have anything but so mm-hmm. the detectives confirmed that he had not been with Liz on any of the nights during which the Pacific Northwest victims had vanished, nor the day that Janice Ott and Denise Naslin were abducted. Yeah. Yeah. In September, Bundy sold his Volkswagen Beetle to a teenager and the Utah police impounded it and FBI technicians dismantled and searched it. They found hairs matching samples obtained from Karen Campbell's body. Mm. Later, they also identified hair strands from those of Melissa Smith and Carol Durant. Mm. FBI lab specialist Robert Neal concluded that the presence of hair strands in one car matching three different victims who had never met one another would be a, quote, a coincidence of mind-boggling rarity. That's not, I'm sorry. You can't even, I'm sorry. Like, I understand what he's saying. He's like saying that. It's a coincidence of mind-boggling rarity because it cannot possibly be a coincidence. Like, right? Yeah, that's proof enough. I'm sorry. For real. For real. Yeah. No. That's that's plenty proof. That's plenty proof. <sighs> yeah. On October second, detectives put Bundy into a lineup. Durange immediately identified him as quote Officer Roseland, and witnesses from Bountiful recognized him as a stranger at the Viewmount High School Auditorium. There was insufficient evidence to link him to Kent, whose body was never found, but more than enough evidence to charge him with aggravated kidnapping and attempted criminal assault in the Durange case. What about Karen Campbell? I know. You found her hairs. I know. I know. But apparently that wasn't, that wasn't (sighs) enough. I know. I know. Okay. Okay. I know. Okay. He was freed on a he was freed on fifteen thousand dollar bail paid by his parents and spent most of the time between indictment and trial in Seattle living in Liz's house. This poor woman. This poor woman. I can't. <sighs> Seattle police had insufficient evidence to chain to charge him in the Pacific Northwest murders, but kept him under close surveillance. I still call bullshit. Yeah. In November, the three principal Bundy investigators, Jerry Thompson from Utah, uh, Robert Keppel from Washington, and Michael Fisher from Colorado met in Aspen and exchanged information with 30 detectives and prosecutors from, Good. from five states. Good. 
While officials left the meeting, later referred to as the Aspen Summit. I love that. I do too. I do too. Uh, They left the meeting convinced that Bundy was the murderer they sought. They agreed that more hard evidence would would be needed before he get charged with any of the murders. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess at least they were in agreement. True. Something. Yeah. Not enough, but it's something. Yeah, but at least at this point, so now you have uh, people from five different states coming together being like, okay, now we know this is the guy. There's no way this is not the guy. Right. So now all we need to do is look back at the evidence you already have and figure out how are we going to be able to tie it back to this jabroni and figure out how we can actually bring him to trial for these awful things that he's been doing. Right. It's definitely a good start. It's a good start. Yeah. In February 1976, Bundy stood trial for the Durant kidnapping. Mm-hmm. On the advice of his attorney, John O'Connell, he waived his right to a jury due to the negative publicity surrounding the case. After a four-day bench trial and a weekend of deliberation, Judge Stuart Hansen Jr. found him guilty of kidnapping and assault. In June, he was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in the Utah State Prison. In October... He was found hiding in bushes in the prison yard carrying an, quote, escape kit (laughs) that had roadmaps, airline schedules, and a social security card and spent several weeks in solitary confinement. Wow. I'm sorry. The mental image of him hiding in a bush with this little package. (laughs) (laughs) Ted Bundy in a bush. What a little douche. (laughs) it's it's a great image he really is he really really is later that month colorado authorities charged him with campbell's murder after a period of resistance he waived extradition right Mm. proceedings and was transferred to aspen in january of 1977 Mm. on june 7th 1977 bundy was transported 40 miles from the garfield county jail in glenwood springs to pitkin county courthouse in aspen for a preliminary hearing he had elected to serve as his own attorney shocker of course he did and as such was excused by the judge from wearing handcuffs or leg shackles during a recess he asked to visit the courthouse law library to research his case while shielded from his guard's view behind a bookcase he opened a window and jumped to the ground from the second story injury injuring his right ankle as he landed Mm-hmm. Bundy walked through Aspen, then hiked southward onto Aspen Mountain. Near its summit, he broke into a hunting cabin and stole food, clothing, and a rifle. The following day, he left the cabin and continued south toward the town of Crested Butte, but <laughs> became lost in the forest. For two days, he wandered aimlessly on the mountain, missing two trails that led downward to his intended destination. On June 10th, he broke into a camping trail trailer on maroon lake 10 miles south of aspen taking food and a ski parka but instead of continuing southward he walked back toward aspen eluding roadblocks and search parties along the way three days later he stole a car at the edge of aspen golf course cold sleep deprived and in constant pain from his sprained ankle bundy drove back into aspen where two police police officers noticed his car weaving in and out of its lane and pulled him over He had been a fugitive for six days. In the car were maps of the mountains area around Aspen that prosecutors were using to demonstrate the location of Campbell's body. And because he was his own attorney, he had rights 
of mm. discovery for all that information, um, mm. indicating that his escape was not spun was not a spontaneous act, but it had been planned. Mm-hmm. And that is his first escape, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It, it wasn't when he was sitting in the bush with his little escape kit. No, that does not count. No, no, it, it does doesn't not count. count. It does not count. But yeah, that wraps up the Pacific first half. Northwest. Yes. Yeah, the first half. And uh, Jovi actually went and continued her story enough that my whole first page of my story is now irrelevant. But I do have a quote. I do have a quote that I do want to read. But before I do that, let me go ahead and tell you guys my sources for the back half of our story about Ted Bundy. So I kind of titled the second half, The Escapes, Final Crimes, and Capture of Ted Bundy. Nice. So my sources for the rest of the story is all that's interesting. Um, An article from CBS News, an article from Refinery29, um, articles from the website Crime and Investigation, um, the blog Bundy File, which, okay, but... (laughs) It's like, seriously, it wants to be a Bundy file and it's Bundy file P H I L E, which it's like, but um, the thing, the reason why I used that, there was a really great interview with one of his later survivors. So, oh, cool. I did uh, use resources from that. An article from Thought Co, Morbid Tourism and Wikipedia. So I, I purposefully wanted to do the second half and into his trial specifically because of the fact that I just find, I feel as though Ted Bundy is so synonymous with the Pacific Northwest that a lot of the times those Midwestern, like those Utah and Colorado murders, and of course the Florida murders don't seem to get as much, as much coverage. Right. Right. They're kind of lesser known. So because of that, I wanted to look a little bit more into those. So I wanted to kind of look into those final nine months of his reign of terror. Nice. So like I said, I have a quote that I wanted to share uh, from Ted Bundy about his initial escape. So this escape from that Aspen courtroom where he was uh, about to face trial for the murder of Karen Campbell. And again, as we know, he's a narcissist defending Mm -hmm. himself. And he was, because of that, he was able to not have those restraints. Like Jovi said, no handcuffs, no leg restraints. He was able to use the law library and it was in the law library. The window was open and the quote he, he later described the moment in a phone call with a prison psychologist. And he said, quote, the guard went outside for a smoke. The windows are open and the fresh air is blowing through and the sky was blue. And I said, I'm ready to go. And I walked to the window and I jumped out. Honest to God, I just got sick and tired of being locked up. Oh, poor yeah, baby. Poor guy. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So he gets back into custody right after his six days on the run um he's stripped of all of his privileges he's no longer allowed to be without shackles uh, and he's starts to plan his next next escape because he felt that the the reason why his first escape didn't work is because it just wasn't planned enough so mm-hmm. he decided that that is what he was going to do and he was going to get the hell out of dodge so Through a series of jailhouse trades, Ted was able to acquire a map of the prison and a hacksaw. So Wonderful. Yes. So he starts to study the map of the jail and he realizes that where his cell is, he's directly beneath the living quarters of one of the jailers. Um, And if I'm not mistaken, it was actually the senior jailer at the, the, the jailhouse. Oh, shit. I didn't know that. 
So yes. So there's only a small crawl space between his cell and the room above. And like this little crawl space is all that's separating the two. And there's a one square foot vent in the ceiling of Ted's cell that would let him get into that crawl space. But of course, because it's tiny, right? It's one square foot. He couldn't fit through the vent. So his plan was riding on him limiting his food intake to lose weight. Unreal. Unreal. Yes. So (laughs) by December 30th, 1977, Ted has lost about 35 pounds. And yeah. And like you figure Ted Bundy was already a svelte man. He was already a thinner guy Yeah. now losing on top of that 35 pounds. So (sighs) with this teeny tiny frame, he's now ready to execute his plan to jump into the ceiling. So he places files and books onto his bed. He covers them with a blanket to give the illusion that he was sleeping in bed. He climbs up into the ceiling and crawls towards the jailer's bedroom above. So the jailer was out, apparently had gone out that night and took his girlfriend or his wife out for dinner or whatever. So Ted enters the room and changes into the jailer's clothes and then is able to walk right out the door. Wow. Like literally just walks out the fucking front door. Again, balls. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So many, like that takes so many balls of, yes so many balls and <laughs> so, so much, many balls like cocky confidence yes you know what yes. i mean like oh, pff, i got yeah. this yeah absolutely and when you were saying that you know he lost the, the 30 plus pounds or whatever the only mental image i could think of is did you ever see the movie thinner yeah like i just see him being like like i think he's gross period it just correct even grosser even more gross yeah So it would take the jail staff 17 hours to realize that Ted was gone. And (laughs) by that time he had been able to steal a car to get to Denver and then take a flight from Denver to Chicago. Unreal. Yeah. Unreal. (laughs) Yes. So here he is in Chicago. He jumps onto a train and heads to Ann Arbor, Michigan. And we know that he was in Ann Arbor, Michigan for at least a day because he was seen at a bar in Ann Arbor Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. from Ann Arbor. He steals a car and he drives to Atlanta and from Atlanta, he takes a bus to Tallahassee, Florida. Yeah. So it takes him nine days to complete this journey from his jail cell in Aspen to the capital of Florida, arriving in the morning of January 8th, 1978, which Mm. just happens to be Elvis Presley's birthday. It is. It is. It was really funny when I was reviewing my notes before I saw it said January 8th and I'm like, is it actually January 8th? Or did I start writing the word January? And I just put the eighth because I know it's Elvis's birthday and it was in my brain. Right. But no, it really was January. (laughs) It was actually January 8th. Okay. Yes. 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 And it actually happened to be what? uh, Five months after Elvis died. Oh, wow. Because he died August 16th, 1977. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Anywho, the day before my birthday, uh, but also <laughs> wrong year. So yes. <clears throat> he gets to Tallahassee, January 8th, 1978. He stays for one night at a hotel before he rents a room at a boarding house near the campus of Florida State University. Um, I'll be calling it FSU from here on out. Mm-hmm. And he rents this room under the alias Chris Hagen. Now, from all resources, Ted had every intention of laying low in Florida. He thought that he was going to get to Florida, go legit. If he could stay 
out of the attention of police, he could remain free and undetected and like start this new life. Mm-hmm. So he was really, truly like in the mindset on Jan- at least on January 8th, that he's going to start this new life. And like, you know, I commend him for that. Uh, but well, it doesn't I'm, take long. <laughs> well, no, that's what I mean. Like the thoughts there. Correct. I appreciate yeah. that the thought was there, but like, but like an addict and having that mindset. Yeah. It, it's, it takes a lot more than just being like, I'm going to willpower. This. Right. You, it doesn't exist when you're a murderer, like when you're a serial killer and you have that compulsion to kill, like mm-hmm. going cold Turkey is not going to work. No, yeah. absolutely not. Absolutely not. Correct. So he applies for a job at a construction site, but winds up abandoning his attempt to get this job because they ask to see ID. And of course he can't produce ID for Chris Hagen. Nope. So he reverts to his old habits of shoplifting and stealing money. He steals money and credit cards from women's wallets that they leave in their shopping carts at local grocery stores. With this cash and the credit cards, he's able to buy food and pay for drinks at local college bars. When he was bored, he would kind of fall back into that collegiate mindset because we all know that he was, he loved college life, right? Yes. Yes. Um, Yeah. But he, Mm. he did, he like loved being an academic. That was kind of like his jam. And he would go to the FSU campus, sneak into lecture halls and listen to the speakers. Hmm. But the temptation of violence won out. Um, And Ted was seen on the night of January. January 14th, 1978 at a local college bar called Sherrod's Sherrod's Hmm. Ted is now 31 years old. And he like stood out like a sore fucking thumb because he's like this 31 year old creeper at a college bar. And he's at least 10 years older than most of the people that are in this bar. So afterwards, when being interviewed, young women were saying that he, they remembered him. They remembered seeing him. He would like stand to the side and leer at women. Mm-hmm. And one even said like, he looked like an ex-con. You looked at him and you knew that he like looked like he belonged in jail. I was just going to say like, I'm sorry, whatever. There's people out there that have their beliefs on how hot he is or whatever if i were let's say 21 years old oh i don't either if i was 21 years old in this bar Mm -hmm. and i saw him i'd be like that's disgusting yeah sorry that is absolutely disgusting he has those creepy little beady eyes that are way too close together oh through my spine so margaret bowman who was a sister for the chi omega sorority was at Sherrod's that night. And it's believed that he followed Margaret Bowman back to the sorority house. And that's mm-hmm. how he became, uh, came to be at the Chi Omega house in the early morning hours of Sunday, January 15th. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So early morning, January 15th, Ted Bundy enters the Chi Omega sorority house on the campus of Florida state university. He walks up to the second floor carrying a piece of firewood that he grabbed from outside of the house and he enters Margaret Bowman's room first. So he goes into Margaret's room. He violently beats her and he strangled her to death using a piece of pantyhose Mm. leaves her room, goes across the hall to Lisa Levy's room where he beats strangles and sexually assaults her. And he is so violent in his sexual assault of Lisa Levy that he nearly bites off one of her nipples 
And he leaves a bite mark so deep in her left buttock that it's actually used against him in court. And it's probably the most like famous piece of evidence used against Ted Bundy in his trial. Yes, that was, I just, oh God. I know, I know. So after he kills Lisa, he goes back across the hall and he enters the room next door to where Margaret is now deceased. Mm -hmm. Um, Kathy Kleiner, who does survive can remember hearing a noise and she thinks that he tripped on the trunk on the floor that was between the two twin beds Mm. so she opened her eyes just a bit and she sees this figure standing above her holding the firewood in the air and before she can move he brings the wood down on her right side kathy's roommate karen hears noise and she begins to wake up And Ted then turns and starts hitting Karen in the face and the shoulder with the wood before turning back and continuing to hit Kathy. Jesus Christ. So now he's just like in berserker mode, beating Mm -hmm. both of these women. Mm -hmm. He's probably blacked out. He's he's so into what he's doing. Yeah. He like that. Yeah. Everything else is like, fuck it. I don't care. I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jesus. So all of a sudden he's, committing these vile acts, all of a sudden a bright light comes through the windows of their room. Um, Nit Neary, who was another one of the Chi Omega sisters, was returning to the house and the headlights of her date's car lights up the room. And Ted sees this light. He seems startled and he immediately runs out the door. So Kathy states in the interview that she thought that maybe he assumed that with the light coming in the room that he felt that he would be able to be identified. Mm. and she's like mm-hmm. i wouldn't have known it was him because i didn't have my glasses on i couldn't see him <laughs> but you know hey he left yes thank god yes, yes. but i mean notes to him he was spotted by nit neary on his way down the stairs and she would nice. eventually be called as like really the star witness in his trial yeah yeah within the span of just 15 minutes within the Chi Omega house he had sexually assaulted and killed both margaret bowman and lisa levy he attacked Kathy Kleiner and Karen Chandler, who both suffered horrific injuries, including broken mm. jaws and missing teeth. Oh my God. But he was not done. So he flees the scene and he breaks into a basement apartment about eight blocks away from the Chi Omega house. And he attacks 21 year old FSU student, Cheryl Thomas, dislocating her shoulder and fracturing her jaw and skull in five places. Mm. Her housemates in the next room, Debbie Ciccarelli and Nancy Young, hear noise coming from her apartment and they call her, but she doesn't answer. So they immediately call the police. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Ted was able to escape before the authorities arrive. Thankfully, Cheryl does survive, but she's left with permanent deafness and she has equilibrium damage so bad that it ended her dance career. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, on her bed, police find semen, a semen stain and a pantyhose mask containing two hairs similar to Bundy's in class and characteristic. Mm-hmm. So you figure this is uh, January 15th. Um, Ted lays low and he's not seen again until February 8th. And now he's in Jacksonville, Florida, which is about two and a half hours away from Tallahassee. But he's driving around in a stolen FSU van. <laughs> Like, cause that's not going to stick out like a sore thumb. Oh my God. So first he approaches a 14 year old girl named Leslie Parmenter. And he tries to gain her trust by telling her that he's a fireman and that his name is Richard Burton, which like the actor, like you fucking idiot. Dumbass. Anyway, he's an idiot. Mm-hmm. Um, thankfully, Leslie's older brother approaches and like gets between the two. So Ted flees. 
Mm-hmm. The following day, 60 miles from Jacksonville in Lake City, Florida, Ted abducts his final victim. On February 9th, 1978, 12-year-old Kimberly Leach mm-hmm. went missing in the middle of the school day from Lake City Junior High. So Kimberly was sitting in class and she gets called from the office, the school's office to come and pick up her purse because she left it in another classroom earlier that day. Mm-hmm. So she goes to the office, she gets her purse and on her way back to the classroom, she's spotted by Ted walking alone. Now, of course, when I'm reading this in my head, I'm like, how did he see her? But I keep forgetting, like we're in Florida. There's a lot of outdoor walking in Florida. Right. Like I picture right. like an elementary school. That's not far from where I am now. All of like the walking walkways are outdoors. are open. Yeah. yeah. Like growing up in New Jersey, we didn't have open walkways. Everything was inside because high snow. Yes. That doesn't yes. happen here. So. And they, yeah. they like to keep us prisoner. Like we couldn't, <laughs> they do. we couldn't see the light of day until the last bell rang. Exactly. So, you know. They're like, sun, <laughs> what's the sun? <laughs> what is that? What is the sun? So he sees her as she's walking back to her classroom and he quickly overpowers her and forces her into his car and she would never be seen alive again. Hmm. Seven weeks after her disappearance, her body was recovered from a farm about 35 miles away from Lake City. Um, an autopsy that was performed on her concluded that Kimberly had been sexually assaulted and her throat was slit. That's how she, she died. Poor baby. Yeah. (sighs) Ted Bundy was finally apprehended on February 15th, 1978 after being pulled over for driving erratically. So I would like to point out that all three times that this bozo was taken into custody by fucking police is because of how bad of a driver he is. Yep. Yep. Like of all things, of, of all things, all things. Yeah. Oh my God. It's so frustrating. Like stay out of the car. You dumbass. Well, God, I hate him. <laughs> all right. I'm sorry. It, just, it makes me so angry, but you're <sighs> right though. Like of, it, of all the things you have just murdered. How many people and of all the things that you get pulled over for, it's because you can't fucking drive. Yep. Yep. But I mean, in a way, thank God he can't drive because then he wouldn't have been arrested, period. Probably because his eyes are so close together. Weasel face. So he gets pulled over. But as soon as the vehicle's license plate comes back, showing that the vehicle had been stolen, he attempts to flee the scene. But he does not get far. Um, The officer subdues him, places him under arrest. The IDs of three of his deceased victims were found in the car. Oh, my God. While he's being arrested, Bundy was said to utter the words i wish you had killed me i wish i wish somebody had killed you a long time ago sir for real for real like before your um execution date um and before you murdered all of these women yes so in july of 1978 ted was indicted for the murders of margaret bowman and lisa levy as well as the attempted murders of cheryl thomas kathy kleiner and karen chandler uh he was Mm -hmm. not yet uh, indicted for Kimberly Leach's murder, but he does uh, obviously eventually uh, do get indicted for that. Yeah, yeah. According to Mike Minerva, a Tallahassee public defender and a member of his defense team, there was a plea bargain that was uh, attempting to be negotiated with Ted um, in which if he pled guilty to killing Lisa Levy, Margaret Bowman and Kimberly Leach, uh, he would only have to serve, he would serve a firm 75 year prison sentence. So basically avoid the death penalty and you have to serve 75 years. Mm-hmm. Of course, at this mm-hmm. point, he's in his thirties. He's not going to get out, but no, yeah, no, 
But who's to say that he won't try to escape for the fourth time? That's kind of the way that I felt about it. I was like, why would yeah. you want to do that? But hey, you know, I, I'm not. a. That's why I'm not a prosecutor now. At the But at the last minute, Bundy refuses the deal. So uh, Mike Minerva says, quote, it made him realize he was going to have to stand in front of the whole world and say he was guilty and he just couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. poor thing yeah. i am so sorry but you figure up until now he's he's maintaining his innocence yeah that's this is true this is true so they wind up changing the venue of where the trial is going to t- take place you figure fsu is all the way up in the panhandle in tallahassee they changed the venue for the chi omega homicides and assaults to miami uh, and he stands trial in june of 1979 The trial is covered by 250 reporters from five continents. Good Lord. And it was the first trial to ever be televised nationally in the United States. No shit. Yes, shit. Wow. I I didn't see, I I didn't know that that was like the first one. That's in, well, I mean, I get it. Yeah. But I I mean, I get, that's why we have so much footage from the trial. Right. Um, despite the presence, and I think there was this thing too, of it's not just like a Florida victory to have him on trial. This is like a national victory to finally catch this monster, you know? Correct. So despite the presence of five court appointed attorneys, Ted Bundy, once again, handled much of his own defense. Of course he did. What a fucking narcissistic prick. Legit. Yeah. Like, I'm the smartest person here, you assholes. Like, fuck you, Ted Bundy. And wasn't wasn't there something, and I think I saw on um, This Interests Me, mm-hmm. that his IQ wasn't even that high. So he technically wasn't a genius. So he was just a cocky asshole. Exactly. People always talk about how he had, like, this genius IQ. Like, no, he actually didn't. No. He nope. actually did not. Nope. Um, and I'm going to read you a quote when I'm done done that I think is just mwah, sums up how little of a man this person is yes I so wait. beautifully and i'm gonna that's gonna be like my ending quote and it's just perfectly explains like oh he's just a fucking asshole i can't wait to hear it i'm so excited <laughs> yes so from the beginning he quote sabotage sabotaged the entire defense effort out of spite distrust and grandiose delusion said polly nelson another member of the defense team she also says quote ted was facing murder charges with a possible death sentence and all that mattered to him apparently was that he be in charge unreal uh, well, you know prioritize violently angry like, this man makes me violently angry Gosh, he's just such him. a fucking douche he's such a fucking douche oh yeah oh Yes. So at trial, crucial testimony come from uh, two Chi Omega sorority sisters. One is Connie Hastings, who was able to place Ted in the vicinity of the sorority house on the evening of the attacks. And of course, Nita Neary, who saw him leaving the house. Um, and he, she also saw him clutching the murder weapon. Right, right, right. Incriminating physical evidence was presented at the trial, including, like I said, that famous impressions of the bite wounds that um, Bundy had left on Lisa's left buttock, which forensic forensic on. I said it perfectly before when I was practicing with which forensic odontologists Richard Soveron and Lowell Levine matched to castings of Bundy's teeth. So forensic dentist was like, yeah, that's his fucking teeth. That's mm-hmm. what that sentence just said. And and didn't the fucker try to 
yes. to fight that. Yes, yep, he, did. he did. Yes, he did. Of he said he that. Did. Yep. He said that there's no way that it's conclusive. You dick. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, okay. You <laughs> dick. So once the case was handed over to the jury, they deliberated for less than seven hours before convicting Bundy on July 24th, 1979 of the Bowman and Levy murders, three counts of attempted first degree murder for the assaults on Kleiner, Chandler, and Thomas, and two counts of burglary. Trial judge Edward Coert imposed death sentences for the murder convictions. Judge Coert had this to say while sentencing Bundy. Now, this is a very long quote, but I'm going to read the whole thing because mm-hmm. you're going to hear a very familiar wording in here. Okay. And it is a very famous sentencing quote. Okay. And he said this quote, the court finds that both of these killings were indeed heinous, atrocious, and cruel. And that they were extremely wicked, shockingly evil, vile, and the product of a design to inflict a high degree of pain and utter indifference to human life. This court, independent of but in agreement with the advisory sentence rendered by the jury, does hereby impose the death penalty upon the defendant, Theodore Robert Bundy. It is further ordered that on such scheduled date that you'll be put to death by a current of electricity sufficient to cause your immediate death and such current of electricity shall continue to pass through your body until you are dead. Take care of yourself, young man. I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It is an utter tragedy for this court to see such a total waste of humanity, I think, as I've experienced in this courtroom. You're a bright young man. You'd have made a good lawyer, and I would have loved to have you practice in front of me, but you went another way, partner. I don't feel any animosity toward you. I want you to know that take care of yourself. Now, literally everything that he said, I agree with, except for the sentence. I don't feel any animosity towards you. Right. Oh no. I feel all the animosity. Like how could you not feel animosity towards this fucking monster? He's not human. I'm sorry. Ted Bundy was not a human being. No, absolutely. He was the devil on earth. Literally, literally. Wow. But I just, that whole thing. It's an amazing quote. It's, it's an amazing ugh, quote. Shivers. But I just, yep. of course, we know that the extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile is the name of the Zephron Ted Bundy Zephron. Uh, series and yeah, or movie. It's yeah. a movie. It's not a series, yeah, yeah. But it's ugh, it sticks with you. It does. It really does. Mm-hmm. Wow. Ooh, so six months after the trial in Miami, Bundy is now in Orlando and he's facing the trial for the murder of 12 year old Kimberly Leach. Um, he once again is found guilty. Um, after less than eight hours of deliberation by the jury due principally to the testimony of an eyewitness who did see him leading Leach from the schoolyard to his van. Um, there was also material evidence that included clothing fibers, which had a manufacturing error. So it was easy to identify these fibers. They oh, were, yeah. They were found in the van and on Kimberly's body. And they oh, shit. matched the fibers from the jacket he was wearing when he was arrested nice yeah so it's like that's not circumstantial like right that's like legit correct that is legit correct yeah but it was during the penalty phase of the leech murder trial that ted did something that i think of all the things that ted bundy could do still surprised people so i'm gonna go a little back in time gonna rewind a little bit and introduce you to Carol Ann Boone. So mm. Carol Ann Boone was a woman that Ted had begun a like quasi relationship with back in Seattle. I think it was actually pre-Liz or during a breakup with Liz. I want to say it was during a breakup mm-hmm. or 
even while he was still with Liz, because he had no problem doing that. <laughs> That's also true. Um, mm-hmm. And he met her while he was working. They were both working at the Department of Emergency Services in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Carol Ann was a twice divorced mother of two, and the two of them became very close friends. Now, while he was while she was going through her second divorce, Ted had pursued her romantically, but she did say no because of what was going on with her divorce but they did continue to correspond um throughout his travels across the country they would write letters and speak on the phone Mm -hmm. now while ted was in utah in 1975 carol even made the trip to the state for a visit with ted and if i'm not mistaken she was actually present at his utah trial for the carol delanche uh kidnapping trial When Ted made his second escape, the one that actually brought him to Florida, he bankrolled his travels using money he saved that Carol Ann had sent him through their correspondence. So she would like, yeah, she would like send him letters and put money in the letters and he would squirrel away his money. And that's how he was able to get the plane ticket from Denver to Chicago. And that's how he was able to get on the bus from Atlanta to Tallahassee. So as his Florida trials begin, Carol Ann moves to Florida to be a support for Ted in court. So she's often interviewed by journalists and she maintains her belief that Ted does not belong in jail. And she even went so far as to insinuate that the evidence against Ted in the Florida cases were all fabricated. So Ted, of course, in this trial, also acting as his own attorney. Shocker. Of course. Yes. He calls Carol Ann to the stand during the penalty phase of the trial to act as a character witness. So when he asks her to describe him, Carol Ann classified him as, quote, kind, warm, and patient. And she goes on to say, I've never seen anything in Ted that indicates any destructiveness towards any other people. He is a large part of my life. He is vital to me. Ooh. Yeah. Like my stomach just churned for real. So then after she says this, Ted then asks Carol Ann on the stand in the midst of the murder trial, murder penalty phase to marry him. (laughs) She agrees. Of course she does. And then when he says the words, quote, I do hereby marry you. It is considered an official legal marriage under Florida law. Are you serious? Yep. So in his research for his case, Ted found an old Florida law that stated as long as a judge is present during a declaration of marriage in court, the intended transaction is legally valid. So on February 9th, <laughs> 1980, Ted and Carol Ann are married. Uh, uh, oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, it, it, oh God. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it doesn't matter because he gets given another death sentence. So, <laughs> I mean, fair. That's yeah. Fair. He's sentenced to death for the murder of Kimberly Leach, and he was transported to death to a death row cell at the Florida State Prison in Rayford, Florida, not far from Lake City, where Kimberly was mm-hmm. from. Mm-hmm. So Carol Ann tells Ted that she wants to have a child with him. Now, mm-hmm. conjugal visits for Ted were not permitted. But Carol Ann has been quoted to say that one of the guards was real nice and often turned a blind eye to their activities. She says, quote, after the first day, they just didn't care. They walked in on us a couple of times. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's believed that Carol Ann would smuggle drugs in for Ted 
and that they consistently were physical on their visits. Two years into his stint on death row, his daughter, Rose Bundy, is born. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. Poor kid. Like, oh my God. Why? Why? Yep. What? what? Okay. Okay. Oh, God. So she's born in 1982. Like, oh, no, that's a lie. She's born in 1984. Okay. But no, see, she was born in 1982. <laughs> are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. So 1982. Got it. Yeah. Now I know that Carolyn, but she didn't want, she was like, Ted wouldn't do this, blah, 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 blah. But like in retrospect, this man who did this, the stuff he did to women just impregnated you and just like, I'm sorry. I why? I know. Why? what 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 i know why well my whole thing is this like even if she believed he didn't do it he's still on death row so right. now you're you're sentencing your daughter to a life without a father mm-hmm. except for when she gets to visit daddy on death row mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like i'm sure she lives in therapy the fuck for real i would change my last name so fucking oh, quick for real for real like I'd be my first words out of my mouth would be new last name <laughs> for real. <sighs> so Rosemary's born. Carol Ann continues her visits with Ted now with their baby in tow for four more years. But in 1986, Carol Ann divorces Ted and never sees him again. Did it finally hit her that she was what she did was dumb. Yeah. And you'll see why. Yeah. So yeah. Now, as, as, as Ted kind of goes into this phase where he is beginning to uh, appeal his sentencing, he begins a series of interviews with Stephen Mashad and Hugh Ainsworth. And he mm-hmm. speaks in the third person to avoid, mm-hmm. quote, the stigma of confession. And he begins to disclose some really graphic and awful details of his crimes and his thought process now Mm. if anybody has seen on netflix on the netflix the confession tapes of ted bundy Mm -hmm. this is what they are it's Mm -hmm. these guys Mm -hmm. so Ted first discusses him being a thief. Um, and he says, quote, the big payoff for me was actually possessing whatever it was I had stolen. I really enjoying, enjoyed having something that I wanted and gone out and taken. And this then becomes a theme for the rest of the tapes where we see that possession was the goal for his committing rape and murder as well. Mm-hmm. sexual assault he said fulfilled his need to totally possess his victims at first he killed his vic- his victims quote as a matter of expediency to eliminate the possibility of being caught but later murder became part of the adventure the yeah the ultimate possession was in fact the taking of a life he said quote and then the physical possession of their remains the fact that he was even able to say those words Mm -hmm. that i I I know like he's not a human being he was not a human being no he's not Mm -mm. he's he's a 100 a fucking demon he's he's the devil (sighs) wow yeah okay yeah 
So Ted was also famously interviewed by the Green River Task Force. Um, the detective for the Green River Task Force, Dave Reichert, came down to interview him, as did Seattle homicide detective Robert Keppel, who we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ted Bundy was able to provide insight into the mind of a sexual sadist serial killer. And even though uh, Dave, uh, Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, wouldn't be caught for another 17 years after these interviews, once he is caught and all of the evidence starts coming to light and they're able to kind of piece together the story of Gary Ridgway and all the things that he did. Yeah. Ted Bundy was kind of right on the money. He knew exactly the type of person they were looking for. He knew exactly what he would, um, how he would act, what he would be doing. He even knew that likely the killer was going back to visit the remains of his victims. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot, so a lot of the things that Bundy was saying were, were true. Yeah. In early 1986, an execution date of March 4th was set on the Chi Omega convictions. The U S Supreme court. Now, if we remember, that's also when, um, Carol Ann filed for divorce was 1986. So that's where we're seeing her being like, okay, fuck this. I'm out. Right, right, right. In early 1986, an execution date of March 4th was set on the Chi Omega convictions, uh, but the U.S. US Supreme Court issued a brief stay. Um, The execution, though, was quickly rescheduled for July 2nd of 1986. But in April, shortly after the new date was announced, Ted Bundy finally confessed to William to William Hagemeyer of the FBI's behavioral analysis unit and to his attorney, Polly Nelson, what they believed was the full gambit of his crimes, including details of what he did to some of the victims after their deaths. He told them that he visited Taylor Mountain, Issaquah and other secondary crime scenes, often several times to lie with his victims And he did indeed perform sexual acts with their bodies until decomposition forced him to stop. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, Another stay of execution was granted for the July 2nd date, but only 15 hours before it was set to take place. Hmm. A new date was then set for November 18th, but again, a stay was granted. Now, the reason why all of these stays were granted is because once he started talking and he started mentioning other victims, even ones mm-hmm. that detectives didn't know about, they had to start looking into those crimes as right. being able to possibly bring new charges against him. Right. And I have a feeling he knew this. So he that's why he kept going. And kept going exactly. Exactly. Just to Saved delay. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. But it wasn't until mid-1988 that a final appeal denial was handed down and a firm execution date of January 24th, 1989 was announced. With all of his appeals exhausted, Ted finally confesses to the rest of his crimes, including the many that detectives didn't know about. Mm. Carol Ann had touted Ted's innocence throughout all of his trials and felt, quote, deeply betrayed by his confessions of guilt. She moved back to Washington with their daughter and refused to accept his phone call on the morning of his execution. Good. I mean, first good, good, smart decision. The the only one that she's made during their whole, during the story that we know of at least. Yes. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. Ted Bundy was executed in the Rayford electric chair, better known as old Sparky (laughs) at seven 16 AM on January 24th, 1989. 
His last words were directed at his attorney, Jim Coleman, and at a Methodist minister named Fred Lawrence. And he said, quote, Jim and Fred, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I know. know. (laughs) Um, He actually never picked his own final meal. And he was given the standard issue Florida final meal of steak, eggs, hash brown, and toast. Mm. Um, And he also called his mother because she wasn't pre- uh, present at the execution. So, I mean, I'm sure it was for a reason. Yeah. 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 Outside of the jail, hundreds of people sang, danced, and set off fireworks in the pasture across the street from the prison as the execution was carried out. They also cheered as the hearse containing Bundy's corpse departed the prison. He was cremated in Gainesville and his ashes are scattered at an undisclosed location in the Cascade Range of Washington State in accordance with his will, which is incredibly upsetting. <laughs> yeah, well, a little bit. Because you realize how close his ashes now are to where he disposed of the bodies of all Correct. his victims, which is just so fucking creepy. It's it's that last moment of possession, though. Yes. It's that very, even in his death, he was, he had possession over yep. them. And like, to me, the one, so most of his victims were in, on Taylor Mountain, yeah. Taylor Mountain is not part of the Cascade ra- mountain range. Oh, okay. It's part of the Sonoma mountain range. I, I did all of this research because I was curious, like how close he actually was. Yeah. But if we think about all of the remains that haven't been found, mm. I'm curious if, if there's some there, that's where they are. It's possible. Ugh, I hate him. <laughs> so yeah, but he's the Cascade mountain range is actually very close to like Issaquah. It's close to that area. Okay. Okay. Um, the night before his execution, Ted Bundy confessed to 30 homicides, but the true total remains unknown. Estimates have run as high as a hundred or more. And Ted would occasionally make like cryptic hints that this possibly is true. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, he told Hugh Ainsworth in 1980 that for every murder publicized, there could be one that was not. When FBI agents proposed a total tally of 36, Bundy responded, add one digit to that and you'll have it. Years later, he told Polly Nelson, which doesn't mean 37, by the way, that means one no. digit, meaning like 361. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 36 or 136. Yep. Which probably makes more sense than 361. You know what I mean? I mean, I would hope. You would fucking hope. Yeah, seriously. Um, years later, he tells Polly Nelson, his, his attorney that the common estimate of 35 was accurate, but Robert Keppel writes, quote, Ted and I both knew the total was much higher. Reverend Fred Lawrence, the one who was present at his execution and administered his last, his last rites at his execution says, quote, I don't think even he knew how many he killed or why he killed them. That was my impression. My strong impression. Yeah. I'm with him on that. Uh, I'm going to list his victims real quick. And then I have a couple of final thoughts, but I do want to take a moment to list all of his victims. So we have uh, a compiled list of his known victims. So from 1974, we have Karen Sparks, AKA Joni Lenz, 18 years old, who survived. Linda Ann Healy, 21. Donna Gail Manson, 19. Susan Elaine Rancourt, 18. Roberta Kathleen Parks, 22. Brenda Carol Ball, 22. George Ann Hawkins, 18. Janice Ann Ott, 23. Denise Marie Nasland, 19. Nancy Wilcox, 16. 
Melissa Ann Smith, 17. Laura Ann Aim, 17. Carol Durant, 18, survived. Deborah Jean Kent, 17. In 1975, we have Karen Eileen Campbell, 23. Julie Cunningham, 26. Denise Lynn Oliverson, 25. Lynette Dawn Culver, 12. Susan Curtis, 15. And in 1978, we have Margaret Elizabeth Bowman, 21. Lisa Levy, 20. Karen Chandler, 21, survived. Kathy Kleiner, 21, survived. Cheryl Thomas, 21, survived. And Kimberly Diane Leach, 12. The 12-year-olds kill me. Like, I, I, I mean, it's all terrible, but like, yep. again, my whole thing with children, like, mm-hmm. just leave them the fuck alone. Agreed. Leave everybody alone. Leave but everybody God. alone. Terrible. <sighs> Absolutely terrible. Yeah. Minutes before his execution, Hagemeyer asked Bundy about unsolved homicides in New Jersey, Vermont, Illinois, Texas, and Miami. Um, he denied any involvement of the open cases, but that is when he provided directions to Susan Curtis's burial site. You mentioned that earlier. Uh, she yes. was the 15 year old in 1975 who had gone yes. missing. Um, but his directions to her burial site were proven inaccurate, which is why, like you said, she is still considered a missing person. Yes. In 2011, Bundy's complete DNA profile obtained from a vial of his blood found in an evidence vault was added to the FBI's DNA database for use in current and future unsolved murder cases. Nice. And I have a final quote that I want to read. I'm trying to find it now. I have it pulled up. Here we go. There was a movie that had come out in 2021 called No Man of God, and it starred Elijah Wood as a FBI special agent, um, as Bill Hagemeyer, who interviews Ted Bundy in his final years. And um, the person who wrote the movie, his name is uh, C. Robert Cargill. He was doing an interview with a podcast, Pod of Madness, and he talked about why he wanted to write the film. And he says this, which is just my favorite thing that's ever been said about Ted Bundy. Quote, there have been a lot of movies and a lot of media made about Ted Bundy. And one of the things that bugged me a lot was that it's all kind of selling the myth of Ted Bundy and kind of glorifying him in a way. And the deeper you dig into the story, you realize there's nothing to mystify here. There's nothing amazing about him. Mm -hmm. End quote. He was just a bastard. Yeah, he was he just was a, a piece prick. of shit. He was just a murdering piece of shit. Yep. And that's it. That's the only thing about him is that he Agreed. was a monster. Agreed. There was nothing special about him. He wasn't a genius. He nope. wasn't a he wasn't handsome. Not at all. He made no money. He wasn't successful. He never nope. finished his education. He was a prick. 110%. And the only thing that he ever did was lord this misogynistic, disgusting power over women and took advantage of their natural empathy. Yep. Because he was able to, what, slightly turn on the charm? Yeah. Yeah. Fuck Ted Bundy. Terrible, terrible man. Terrible man. Mm-hmm. So loyal listeners, I have to tell you what just happened. So 
Jovi and I finished telling the story and then we just started talking and we were asking each other's questions and like literally for the last like 15 minutes we were just talking and Jovi says all right let's go ahead and wrap up the episode I'm like oh my god we didn't do the outro (laughs) totally forgot a hundred episodes yes this is a hundredth episode sometimes how we made it this far oh is a miracle <laughs> what an idiot it's a friday afternoon is it, i'm gonna go with the friday afternoon excuse me no sure, it's just us sure, it's sure, us. sure. It's just no us. it's just us. we got it's, off on a tangent yes yes what we a did dumbass. yes we did oh gosh wow right. well guys that was our hundredth episode i hope you all made it through the whole thing <laughs> this is probably going to be our longest episode ever we try to keep it an hour and under but there was no way that we could do that with the whole ted bundy thing and all the shit that he did so thank you for sticking around Hmm. if you if you listen to it all even if it took you a couple days i get it Mm -hmm. i I absolutely get it with that being said if you have any story suggestions Mm -hmm. please 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 email them in we've received a couple yeah so thank you in advance uh they will be coming up you could send those requests to bedcrimestoriespod at gmail.com. You could also slide into our DMs on Instagram at bedcrimestories. Please <laughs> rate, review, and subscribe. Mm-hmm. Tell a friend. Tell them that we hate Ted Bundy. <laughs> and they yeah. should too. Yeah. Um, what else what am i missing charlie why don't you why don't you take us out i'll take you guys i'll take you out <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I, mean- <laughs> I don't want to be featured on the next episode of the podcast i will not take you out um <clears throat> yeah i i just you know before we like do the final goodbye i do again kind of just want to reiterate what jovi just said thank you guys so much for for listening for hanging out with us for all these months um you know i will also say next month marks two years that we've been doing the podcast which again also is just crazy you know we 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 do this for fun because we enjoy talking about this stuff and you know you guys know jovi and i are have been friends for almost 30 years so it's easy for us to sit and have these conversations but we we continue to do it for all of you who you know message us in instagram or send us those Mm -hmm. emails or you know continue to correspond with us and, and like our, we see you, we, we see the Instagram faithfuls who are liking every post and yes, we do. Um, you know, it, we couldn't do it without you. I, we wouldn't do it without you truthfully. Nope. Cause, and I will, I'm going to be frank and honest. There's been plenty of times where I've really wanted to call up Jovi and just be like, you know, do you think it's time for us to stick a fork? <laughs> yeah. Agreed. But I don't, I, I don't know what it will take for us to finally, uh, to sunset bed crime stories, uh, because I, I love you guys and I don't want to ever leave you all hanging, but, uh, we appreciate okay. everything you've all done for us. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you guys also know the fact that we keep it ad free. We do this for free. We don't make any money whatsoever nope. off the podcast. I'm not saying nope. that that's going to last forever because, <laughs> uh, you know, your girl's money motivated and on a life. but you know, we do, we, you know, we've done this for almost two years now and we do it for fun. And mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's an opportunity for Jovi and I to get to spend at least one day a week together. So that's fun too, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but we do it for you and we appreciate everything that you've done for us. Please be kind for, to one another. Yes. 
I cannot stress enough how much it means when, you know, somebody just says something simple and kind to another person and, um, you know, the, the difference that you can make in a different, in a person's day, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you never know what somebody else is going through. So to offer a smile, to offer a kind word, it it means the world to other people. Yep. Yeah. And I think that that's uh, all I got to say. So again, thank you guys so much for a hundred episodes. You guys are fantastic. We love you all so, we so, so much. You. Um, thank you for listening. We will talk to you guys next week for episode 101. <laughs> but until then, <laughs> sweet, sweet dreams. dreams. Bye. Bye. I didn't mean to have the last word. I just happened. So. Okay. <laughs> I don't care. You're allowed. <laughs> okay. Bye. Recording finished or whatever the fuck she says. Our theme song is the song Industrial Music Box by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. creativecommons.org backslash licenses backslash by backslash 3.0.